Lord in heaven, Jesus, we just want to humble ourselves. Um, God, in a world today where there's so many claims to truth, um, where there's so many voices screaming out from our phones, from sometimes even our own family environments, from our work environments, so many voices are grabbing for our attention, claiming truth, but we want to hear your voice today above all that. So Jesus, would your words speak to us? Would this be a time for all of us um, to just see the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of your written word and how your spirit works through that in our hearts to change lives? Um, God, we want to see that happen today. And the, the changes you do now, that they would echo into this next week, that they'd echo for the rest of our life. Um, so we thank you, Jesus, as we come into your presence uh, together as a family. Um, this is for you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be wrapping up um, Joshua in the next two Sundays. We're taking the last chapter, chapter 24, and breaking it in half. Before we jump into that, I want to give a little analogy to set up what we're doing. So my brother, my brother and I, my brother John, we loved video games when we were growing up. Classic computer games. During the week, we were given 30 minutes. We could have 30 minutes of tech time that we could do during the week, and then 45 minutes on the weekend. And I'm forever grateful for my parents that they put that restriction on us because we would have wasted hours a day playing in these games. The reason I bring this up is because there was this couple pivotal moments with my older brother. We both believed in Jesus, and my brother came under the conviction that we'd become servants of these video games. And that instead of us controlling them, they were actually controlling us, our time, our money, our resources, and what we were putting into it. And he actually, just by his leading, we took all our, our games, the little CD discs, you know, before we were all downloading stuff and whatnot. We took them, put them out in our backyard, and we started popping them off with uh, a pellet gun when we scratched them all up so they couldn't be used or anything like that because it was like, man, we want to deal away with these. We want to um, not be servants of these games anymore. And then about Five to six months later, we started buying more video games, and they started coming back into our life. And the same thing happened the second time. We just came to this recognition of like, man, we're serving kind of this God of entertainment. And maybe you could care less about video games. But I still would want to challenge you. One of my friends, John Martin, had this to say. He, he talked about this idea of necessary pleasures in life, where it's like, oh, yeah, this thing in my life, not a big deal. But then you start realizing how necessary it is for you to function, to live life, to enjoy life. And it can become something like good, like your spouse can all of a sudden become your master. Or your job can become your master. Your friends can become your master. Food can become your master. And the influence God is supposed to have in your life is now replaced by something else. And this is where the book of Joshua is going. Every action that we do in life, you see, this is this kind of illusion we've built up in our American society is that we're independent and that we can choose whatever we want. But the reality is, as human beings, we are dependent. We serve something or someone. The question is, who or what is it? And so as we turn to Joshua 24... It is, we're diving into the second speech of Joshua, the leader of the family of Israel. In the first speech, he talked and, and, and took Israel to see God, to trust God, 
to love God. And why was he pointing these things out? It's because he was coming to the end of his life. He had poured out his life to lead his family. And what he didn't want to see is when his life ended, that their following of God ended at the same time. He didn't want to see that. He wanted to see his family pursue God, to serve God. And so this second speech that we're looking at, the first half of it anyway today, is drawing Israel to a decision. So as Joshua has unfolded the benefits of, of pursuing God, of loving him. He draws them to a decision point. What he's trying to do is clear out all the muck of life and really come to this one question, who are you going to serve today? And my hope is that we ask that same question of ourselves and as a church, who are we serving today? And so we're going to look at, first of all, a divine story where Joshua walks them through this big arc, looking way back to Abraham, who, who began the family of Israel, or rather, through God, began the family of Israel. Looks at this big story arc from there, and then he takes a look at divine commands from there, and he ends with the divine challenge. So who will you serve? Who will we serve? Let's open up Joshua 24. We're going to just walk through the first 13 verses. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So what I just read is Joshua relaying this divine story. And what you'll notice is, is that Joshua is speaking on behalf of God. So it's God's words that have been written down that Joshua is relaying to Israel. 
So why does this piece of narrative matter? Why does this divine story, why should it capture our attention at all? First of all, it's looking at the big picture, drawing out themes about who God is and what he's done. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, I got a slide up here with references, you'll see the apostles of Jesus would often narrate this very same story and point it to Jesus. So you'll see Jesus in Luke 24, he, has, uh, he takes two disciples along the path to Emmaus. This is after he's risen from the dead, and they're, all, they're despondent because they think, ah, oh, Jesus, he's dead, he's gone. And Jesus is like, I'm going to take you, I'm going to open up the scripture, which was the Old Testament, and I'm going to show it how it all points to me, how it's all about me. And then you'll see sermons like in Acts 7, that's where Stephen, he was a deacon, by the way. This might be a warning for anyone who wants to be a deacon, by the way, because he gives a sermon pointing to Jesus and how the Old Testament leads up to him, and the response is that they kill him because of the truth that he's speaking. And then in Acts 13, 13 through 52, that's Paul. Again, walking through this narrative about Israel, about their story, about the family of Israel. Why why does this matter? Because it demonstrates the promises of God in confrontation to other spiritual authorities. And so what it's doing is it's saying, here is God, here are these other spiritual forces, now look what the outcome is. And there's three promises that we've seen, and actually if you go back and listen to the second sermon that we did over Acts, we see these very promises presented at the very beginning of Joshua, which is why we've titled the sermon series A Journey into the Promises, because in this little narrative, it's showing that these promises weren't just in Joshua's time. They were before Joshua, and they continued after Joshua. And so the, the first, one of the big themes we see drawn out is divine presence. So if you look at the first part of this story, it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So this is looking at the fact that Abraham he had nothing to do with the one true God at this point. He was serving other gods. And actually, the, it might seem trivial that it mentions the river of Euphrates, but you'll find that river in another part of Scripture, and that's the beginning, where the, the Garden of Eden is. And what happens when humanity raises their fist against God and says, hey, we're going to be gods unto ourselves, we're going to do what we think is right in our own eyes, and the fall happens, they're removed out of the presence of God. And eventually this leads them across the river. And so the reason that this river is being brought into this passage is it's showing that distinction between a sinful humanity and God. But what does the sovereign God do? He pursues them. He goes after Abraham, and he is the one who brings Abraham. And so you'll see phrases through these 13 verses. I took, I led, I made, I sent, I brought and this is to highlight just the overwhelming presence of God who pursues people. It's because of God's intervention that Abraham would be brought back across the river, back towards where they would eventually enter into the promised land at the current point in Joshua. And it should serve as a reminder for us as well of how God pursues us. God's divine presence, in fact, acts against these other presences. It talks about these gods that they worshipped over the river. And, it's, and if you're reading the first part of Colossians, it describes how God comes after us. He pulls us out of enemy territory and he brings us to him. 
So I love how David Jackman summed this up. He said, we are a people of undeserved but abundant mercy from start to finish. It is grace alone that defines who we really are. And we see this grace even right now in this narrative. It's right here in the Old Testament, and it looks forward and anticipates the greater grace that would come through Jesus Christ. And so this promise of divine presence that was promised right at the beginning of Joshua, that we see God fulfilling Joshua, that we see that God was fulfilling it even before Joshua, perfectly comes through Jesus Christ. Even think about the name that was given to Jesus, Emmanuel. What does it mean, God with us? That divine promise would be fulfilled through Jesus. And then what's the grace that we see? Jesus perfectly pursuing us, even though we don't deserve it, so that through faith in him, we could become eternally saved so that his Holy Spirit enters us and his presence, the presence of his Holy Spirit, is with us in an even closer way than what was experienced here in Joshua. And so, what can we take away from this? One is just the comfort of the presence of God, the comfort of a pursuing God who in spite of our sins, in spite of all the things that we've done, he has pursued us. He has given us his word that we can reflect on and and love and put inside our heart and to see what he's done for us. But it's even more critical to recognize the promise of his presence when things aren't going rough. When, When things are going pretty smooth, and that's where we see the people of Israel. You see, they've gone through this whole preparation period. If we look at back at the beginning of Joshua, they went through war and watched God come and fight on their behalf and called them to fight on his terms. They've gone through dispersing the land and doing all this hard work. Well, now they're, the war, for the most part, is done. And this is a critical spot. This is a critical spot where instead of longing for the presence of God, they could neglect the presence of God. And so Joshua is pulling that out of this narrative and saying, look at all that God has done from the very beginning when the family of Israel was created to right now. And then we who are looking at this and reading it today in 2022 can see God fulfilling his promise throughout history. And hopefully you can see it even within your life. In fact, that you're here and hearing God's word is an act of grace and mercy that he has brought upon us. How beautiful is that? And so we see that promise come out of this narrative of divine presence, but we also see a promise come out of divine protection. So in verse 5, referring to Egypt, it says that God brought Israel. And then referring to some of the enemies that they face, we see the Amorites and other tribes in the promised land, this is in verse 8 and verse 11, about how God gave them into the hands of the Israelites, gave them into your hands. And then in verse 10, We see that God delivered them from an enemy prophet. And then in in, uh, verse 11, we see God giving victory as they go through the promised land. And so what we see here, just like God's divine presence goes against these other gods, these other spiritual forces, we also see divine protection and God's divine power come against the power of these other gods, these other influences. So we see God's power when he sent plagues to directly confront the gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. We see God's power come against the physical power of other nations who would send these large, massive armies that are described in Joshua as being innumerable, and yet God uses the word like sending hornets out before them, and it's God's fighting on behalf of Israel so that, yeah, they had swords and shields and all that, but ultimately what gave them victory? It was God and his power and his 
protection. And then we see this story in verse 10 of Balaam. And we see this, really the spiritual war come out in an amazing and beautiful and powerful way. It's the fact that this enemy prophet, trying to speak on behalf of other gods, trying to serve this enemy king, is going to come and he's going to send curses against Israel. But what God does instead is when Balaam goes to speak curses, he speaks blessing instead. So God takes the power of the enemy, castrates it, and uses it for the benefit of Israel. And so... Joshua is drawing them towards this promise of divine protection. And it comes out especially in verse 12 where it says, And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. And one thing we've mentioned is when you see Israel preparing to move into the land that God promised them, you don't see them talking about war tactics. You don't see them talking about the inventory of their weapons and what they're going to use. Instead, what you see in preparation is a deep pursuit of relationship with God through a covenant relationship, this deep commitment between the family of Israel and the Lord. And so this serves as a culmination, this verse showing that it's, there's nothing that you did. There was no power that you had that did anything. It was me, and you need to wake up and see this promise of divine protection, how it's been since the beginning all the way up to the presence. And so, for us, we see this promise ultimately fulfilled in Christ, in the ultimate spiritual battle that took place on the cross. And so what is our protection? What is our power? It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, um, we went through Hebrews. If you want a really good book that helps tie the New Testament and the Old Testament together, I'd encourage you to walk through the book of Hebrews. Um, This came from one of the sermons we did in there, this slide, and it goes over... All that Jesus' blood provides, that it provides forgiveness indefinitely when we put our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, that it puts away sin permanently, it provides forgiveness, it provides healing, it provides intimacy, it provides freedom, it provides life, it provides purpose, it provides cleansing for our soul, it provides defeat to Satan. This is the power of Jesus' blood. And so when we look at what God was doing in Joshua and how he perfectly fulfilled his promises for them, we who are on the other side of the cross look at how that was perfectly fulfilled and what Christ would do. And we see that as a constant reminder. The last element to this divine narrative is divine provision. In Joshua 24, 13, it says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So God's provision, again, is set against the provision of other gods, other spiritual powers, other things that people can look to, and it's showing, I provided this. There was nothing that you did to deserve or to earn this. I provided. And so Philippians 4.19 says what? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we ultimately see this in the amazing blessing that will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. When God comes and we get to experience the full relational presence with him if our faith is in his saving work on the cross. And so we see that beautiful fulfillment of a divine provision that isn't scant, that isn't just a little bit, but it's full-blown God 
ordained provision. So divine presence, divine power and protection, and divine provision. These are these major themes that come out. And so the question is, do we see this story? Do we see how this narrative continues? Do we see it not only through the scripture, but do you see this divine story in your life? That God has these promises for you. That he has promised you provision in Christ. That he has promised protection in Christ. And that he has promised his presence. Because here's the thing. When we start talking about other gods, other spiritual influences, we who live in a Western world that's dominated by science hear that and we think, yeah, whatever, that doesn't really matter. But I would ask you, where are you looking for provision? Where does your power lay? Where are you looking for someone to protect you? Where are you looking for presence, and are all those things really enough for this life? Because, at least what I've experienced, when I look at this story in the Bible and see how it impacts my life, is I'm just brought to the startling reality that without Jesus, my story is going to end in a really bad place. It's going to end in destruction. But Jesus promises that he will sustain us, that he will see us through, through Christ. The other thing that this draws out that's important to recognize is that it highlights the sovereignty and the control of the Lord before it moves to commands, which is what we're going to look at here in a minute, divine commands. And that's important to see because this is what we see within the gospel as well. It's our faith in Jesus Christ that comes first because he did all the action. He did what we couldn't do upon the cross. And then it moves to, well, okay, how do you live your life in response to that? And so this is what Joshua does is he narrates the story of Israel through what God passed on to him. And then Joshua steps up and he gives the response. In verse 14 it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So Joshua is saying like if you get this story if you see the majesty and the power that the Lord has worked on your behalf, even though you don't deserve it, here's how you get to respond. Because when you get the story, when you see God in the way he's working, it should drive you to a place where you see God as almighty, where you are in awe of who he is, where you see the strength of his love that he poured out for us. And so the first part of this divine command is fear the Lord. And this is a tough one. Because it's not a terrifying fear. It's not a fear that you think of in horror movies and what comes out of that. Rather, this is a reverent fear. It's coming to a place where you recognize the awe-inspiring power of who God is. And recognizing that in our sin, that power is against us because he's a holy God. He's a perfect God. And we don't deserve to be in his presence and when we understand what sin does and the corruption that it brings, like, the only answer really is death. But that's where the power of Christ comes into play. That's where the power of love comes in. And so that when we put our faith in Christ, or what we see in the Old Testament is the sacrificial system that's a placeholder until Christ would come, we see this beautiful display of God providing covering for a sinful humanity. 
And so what fear does is it brings us to this place to take God seriously and take him at his word and what he says, both in his righteous wrath against sin, but also in the power of his love towards us as well. Because what often happens when fear is missing in our life is we don't take God seriously. So one where this shows up in the New Testament is 1 Peter 2.17. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so for our ability to honor everyone, our ability to love the brotherhood, our ability to honor the emperor, or maybe the president in our case, it's fear God. To see him as the ultimate authority that drives the power of our life, that determines our actions, that leads us to what we saw in Joshua earlier, which is clinging to the Lord. If you look at Joshua 22.5 and Joshua 23.8, you'll see this word using of cling to the Lord. When we get who God is, when we get the power and strength of a sovereign God, our response should be cling to the Lord. When we genuinely fear God, we see his superiority over any other power that exists. When we genuinely fear the Lord, we don't need to fear others. We don't need to fear the bad times of life. We don't need to get obsessed with the good times of life. We can stand against temptation. And that's the thing I started realizing as I was preparing this message and thinking about this first divine command of fear the Lord. I realized often those sins that we get entrapped in, it's because we've lost a reverence for God. It's because we've forgotten the power of who he is and what he means for our life. And he's moved from that place of being at the center to being peripheral and we don't take him seriously. And that's why the fear of the Lord, when you read through Proverbs, it says it's the beginning of wisdom. Like that's what it brings. It's not, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you're in a place where you're like, man, I don't know if I take God seriously, then ask the follow-up question. What do you take seriously? What is the thing that's driving and controlling your life? The second divine command we see in verse 14 is to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. This is such a beautiful picture. And I think if you've grown up in the church, you know what like, service looks like, where you just kind of put on the mask and you try to just show that you're a good person. You do the actions, check the box, move on. And I love the language that's put in here because whoever we show deep reverence for, for, whoever we serve, we're going to genuinely serve. It's not just going to be something that we're like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll do that. Sure, why not? I want to be a part of this community, so I'll, I'll make it look good. No, it's sincerity. Or if you look at the Hebrew for that word, it means pure intent is what it means. That you're serving God out of pureness, out of a well-intentioned heart. And then faithfulness. That means firm, faithful, true that we're holding on and serving to him out of a regularity of our heart, that we're not giving up a true heart for God that never gives up. That's what's being described here. You serve God because you sincerely desire God. You're faithful to him even when your feelings don't match up. Even when you're having a bad day, life's going out, or your hormones are off balance, or whatever it may be, that you still serve God because you have a deep, reverent fear for God. We serve the Lord sincerely because we see that he goes so far as to serve us. And we see this right in this passage. That's what's leading up to these divine commands. We see a God who has gone so far as to love Israel, fight for them, protect them, do these things that they don't deserve. And if you look at Philippians 2, there's this beautiful description of how Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, comes as a servant to die on the cross in our place 
but to rise in power from the grave. And so when we get who God is, when we fear him, and we also see his servant heart, it drives us to serve as well. And then the last divine command we see is put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So who are the gods in these passages? We've got the gods beyond the river and we've got the gods of Egypt. So what does this mean? Well, if you've ever looked into some of the ancient mythologies and the things that come out of there, there's a lot of themes that you start seeing that crop up in the gods that people chose to serve. They might sound familiar to you in our day and age. Sex, power, money, comfort, relationship, prosperity, destruction. They still exist. And there are still people who are serving them and worshiping them and letting those things run their life. And this is why Joshua's bringing them to this place, is these gods, they promise all the same things that, that the one true God promises. They promise presence. They promise protection. They promise provision. However, when you replace the creator God, the one true God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, with something or someone else, what you're doing is you're cutting your lifeline off of the creator who made you, and instead of bringing life in, you're connecting yourself to death and destruction. That's what happens when you replace God in your life and what that looks like. That's why even as a follower of Jesus, when we get waylaid and we begin pursuing other things, no wonder it brings chaos and hurt and destruction into our life. It's because we've chosen another God. We've chosen to serve something else rather than the one true God. And that's why there's this command in here. Put away those gods. Put them away. And if you've read Joshua up to this point, this is actually one of the bright spots in the family of Israel's history. Like, they've been doing pretty good up to this point. They've been following God. They've been listening to his commands. They've been doing great. So why, why does Joshua bring this command in at this point? Like, I had to ask myself this because there's no indication at this point or little indication, I should say, of what's going on behind the curtains. There's some indication when you look at the previous passages that there were people that they didn't move out of the land who worshipped other gods, and they were probably bringing that influence back into the culture. Or another thing is, is that this is in a tense that's like, keep putting these gods away from you. Keep removing that influence from your life. It, it describes the spiritual warfare that's going on that we also see in our life. If you put your faith in Jesus, guess what? You're still at war. You're still at war against your fleshly desires. You're still in a spiritual warfare, and you need to continually put those influences out away from your life. Because your heart, your heart is displayed by your actions. And your heart and your actions show who you are really serving. And so when you look at the life of a follower of God, it's one of constant repentance. It doesn't mean like, hey, you're going to live this great and perfect life when you put your faith in Jesus. No. In fact, what often shows your faith in Jesus Christ is that when you mess up, when you struggle, when the hard times of life come, you're running to him constantly. You're choosing him above other influences and other gods. So these commands, the reason they are placed where they are is there a result of genuine faith. Faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that leads to a divine decision in Joshua 24, 15. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What I love about this passage and why we need it today is that Joshua is cutting out all the crap and he's bringing it to the heart and to what really matters. He's drawing his family to the line saying, all right, let's get to what's really matter. Are, is your heart for God or is it against God? And we live in a day and age where we need to hear this because of all the influencing voices, even with just in our phone and our technology, let alone all the, the things that are crying out for our attention, calling out for us to serve them rather than God, it often muddles our world. And we often live in a fog of wondering like, man, am I really pursuing Jesus or not? And it leads us to this place of syncretism. If you've never heard the word, what syncretism is is when you're syncing things together. It's like when you take Jesus and something else in your life that you know Jesus probably wouldn't approve of, but you're like, you know what, it's probably fine if they coexist together in my life and you know, we'll just kind of muddle along together and make that, just, just keep living life on my terms rather than God's terms. And that's what Israel's facing. Are they going to let the influence of these other gods come in? And they're just like, you know what? We can just put Jesus on the shelf next to these other guys, and we'll just choose who we're going to worship from day to day, whatever suits us the best. And so when that happens within, the li- within our lives or for Israel, just turn the page over to the book of Judges, and you'll see it happening in real time in their story through the generations where they start adding in these other influences. And what happens is, is they're basically calling God's way evil. And that's why Joshua uses such stark language. He's like, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day. Like, I don't want you to be half-hearted because if you're going to survive moving forward and pursuing the Lord, you're going to need to come to that reality. Whom are you going to serve? Whom are you going to serve? When we see God's way as insufficient, we see God's way as evil. And that's why I love this language, because it's like, let's just cut out the mud, let's cut out the clouds, and bring it to reality. Jesus did the same thing. Matthew 6.24 says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, as we talk about this divine command and where it lands, Joshua is calling them to a regular everyday activity. Continue choosing the Lord. Continue choosing the Lord. And that's why sacraments are so important for us as believers, because it calls us to continually put our life in the hands of Jesus. Now, what that means, just to make sure that it's clear, it's not like, if you're like me, when I was younger growing up in the church, you would commit your life to Jesus like every other week and like say this prayer of salvation just to make sure you're like extra covered. That's not what this means. What it means is if the grace of God has come upon your life. If he has genuinely saved you, he's given you the power to choose Jesus every day in your regular actions, in the things that you do, that you decide to follow Jesus. So what does that look like in real life? What does that look like in the everyday? Well, our identity statement as a church is a good place to start. We say at Radiant that we're a family of missionary servants sent to make disciples that make more disciples. 
And so when you look at your day, when you look at your week, it's asking questions like, how can you choose Jesus and how you live as family towards one another? How can you choose Jesus and how you reach out to others as missionaries? How can you choose Jesus and how you serve your radiant family and the stranger? How can you choose Jesus through intentional discipleship? And so it draws us to that place, and, and, and that's what we can take away is Joshua is pouring out his last words to the people of Israel. He's drawing them back into this deep relationship, this deep covenantal commitment. It should remind us and point us to the covenant we have in Jesus Christ if our faith is in him. But if you're sitting here, maybe you don't follow Jesus. Maybe you don't care much about him. Jesus isn't afraid to go toe-to-toe with whatever authority you have in your life. And I can guarantee you, he's the better option. Not just simply by his ultimate power, his provision, and all the things he has, but when you look at this narrative that started our story, it's also because of the deep love, fully displayed, perfectly displayed in Jesus on the cross. And what he called you to do is to choose saving faith in him above everything else to devote your life to him. So what we're going to move into now is communion. We take communion every week. It's one of the sacraments. It's one of the central aspects of why we gather every day is to lift up Jesus and the work he did on the cross. The juice reminds us of his blood that was shed. The little cracker reminds us of his body that was broken on our behalf. And it also reminds us that before we even had this kind of a choice, Jesus chose us. Jesus pursued us through what he did on the cross, and we get to celebrate that. And I encourage you, communion's an awesome time for repentance and faith. And maybe for you it's repentance where you've got to say, like, Jesus, I've been making some terrible choices. I've been choosing other things other than you, and I need to repent and come back and pursue you. Turn my life around and run after you. Or maybe it's simply faith. Maybe you're in a hard time right now and you've been pursuing Jesus, but life just is brutal. And you've got to lay, lay it out before Jesus and say, like, life's hard right now. I don't want to look to you. It's hard to look to you. It's hard to pursue you and follow you according to your word, but I'm going to do it anyway, if it, even if it comes at a cost to my worldly life. That's what he calls us to. And then after we're done singing two songs, we have another sacrament that we get to celebrate, which is baptism. And it is this physical display of choosing Jesus, of saying, I identify my life with his death. We're gonna baptize uh, uh, a young person today, and when they go into that water, they're identifying that their old self died with Jesus going under that water, but then raised up and identify with the life that Jesus offers. And so very much in that way, it's as if that person is going through baptism and saying, as for me, I serve the Lord. So would you pray with me? We'll do a time of communion, a time of song, and then we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate a baptism. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, and I just pray right now um, for us as a church, for each person who's here. God, would you just remove any fog that might be diluting our faith in you, Jesus? It's maybe keeping us from following these instructions that you've given us, laid out for us in the book of Joshua, that we also see within the whole Bible. And God, would we just live in that place of wonder and awe of who you are and what you've done through the divine story throughout all of Scripture and bring us to that point of (laughs) the decision's obvious. 
It's you, Jesus, that we choose because nothing else compares to you. Everything else just eventually ends in, in death and destruction, but you are the only source of life. You're the only way to the Father. You're the only truth, Jesus. So I pray that you would just, <laughs> just remove the fog, crack our hearts open, speak to us, and help us to rise up as a church, to choose you each and every day as we pursue you, the sovereign God who chose us before the beginning of time. I thank you for who you are and what you've done. It's your name we pray.